0: well good morning my name is amy and i'm the pastor here at incarnation and this morning we're going to keep preaching from the book of galatians which is what i preached on last week last week we were in chapter three this week the lectionary skips a whole chapter a very complicated one and goes right to chapter five and last week when i was talking about chapter three i had said that what paul is trying to do overall in the book of galatians is to convince these gentile christians that they don't need to convert to Judaism, they don't need to follow Jewish law, and specifically that adult men don't need to be circumcised to follow Jesus. And if you think for a minute about this lie or rumor that was circulating among these churches at the time that adults needed to be circumcised to follow Jesus, think about how it's normally infants who are circumcised Think about how painful, what a dramatic act of devotion that must be, and that people are willing to do it. But in chapter three, Paul said last week, no, no, you don't need to do that. That's all wrong. It's actually this big distortion of the gospel that just flies in the face of the sort of living, breathing freedom that Jesus has opened up to us through his resurrection. The law has served its purpose. Circumcision did what it was meant to do. But now we have been resurrected into Christ, into this whole new kind of life that is so abundant, a life where we become one with Christ's own life. And then today, as we get into chapter five, it's almost like people heard that liberating news from chapter three and were like, Great. So does this freedom, does this gospel mean that we can do anything we want? And Paul is going to answer that question today with both a no and a yes. So right at the start, in that first verse Grant read, he says, no, your freedom doesn't mean you can do anything you want. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence but through love become enslaved to one another. So when we become one with Christ, which we talked about last week, when by faith we become one with him in our baptism, we become one with the Jesus who freely gives himself away in love. So Christian film is tied to Christ who loves freely. It doesn't mean throwing off the shackles of responsibility to others. It doesn't mean throwing off the shackles and the pains and everything that's hard about all of our relationships. Christian freedom is freedom for others. Freedom to give ourselves away in love as Christ did. So that's Paul's big no. No, freedom does not mean you can do anything you want. But then, There's also this yes in the passage, because yes, in another sense, freedom does mean we can do anything we want, because we have been freed to want what we were always made to want. Paul says it like this. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh, for what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit. And what the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. You hear that language of wanting, of desire. And so because we have been freed from the demands of the law, because we have been made one with Jesus, the spirit of God lives in us. And that spirit wants what we were always made to want. To live in these generous, creative, self-giving, loving relationships with God and with other people. And so in that sense, our Christian freedom means we are free to do whatever our new creation self wants. Whatever our one in Christ self wants. Because the spirit is making new all of our wants. And so the gospel that we hear all through Galatians and really all through Paul's letters is not that Jesus came to scold us into behaving or to try to inspire us to start living as really squeaky clean, morally upright people. The gospel is that Jesus came to make us a new creation, the dwelling place of God's spirit, people whose wants and desires are coming into alignment with God's wants, whose loves are being conformed to God's love for the world. And the whole rest of today's chapter unpacks that idea of the desires of the spirit and the desires of the flesh. But before we get into that, I just want to say quickly that when Paul contrasts flesh and spirit, he's not trying to put like our physical bodies. At war with our spiritual selves, as though there's spiritual stuff that's good and physical matter that's bad. That is not a Christian idea at all. And the whole Christian story is about the spirit of God inhabiting and making a home in matter, in physical stuff, like Jesus' own body, like the bread and the wine. Matter matters. Bodies matter. Physical stuff matters. Paul's not using flesh and spirit to create this sort of opposition. He's using flesh and spirit more like shorthand for talking about our old selves and our new selves, our greedy, self-serving selves, and our loving, self-giving selves. So with that disclaimer aside, we'll get into this passage. And because whenever we get into Paul, it's easy for things to get sort of heady and intellectual. I'm going to try to tell this passage more like a story this morning. We'll see how it works. And more specifically, I'm going to try to tell it as a story about fruit. We'll start with watermelons. So a number of you asked me about this picture, including some of the kids, some of the adults. Uh, If you look down in the corner, there are watermelons. And those are watermelons, even though you might notice they look a little funny. And kids, this painting is actually this sort of mystery that began with scientists in an art museum, and then they went and did some research and learned a lot about watermelons, so you may want to listen to this part, or you may want to draw a watermelon or your favorite fruit. But this fruit was painted in the mid-1600s by an Italian artist named Giovanni Stanchi and there were these scientists they were in a museum one day they were looking at this painting and just noticing those watermelons look really weird they're really small they have those weird swirly things around the seeds they're not very red they just don't look like our watermelons and so these scientists did what our kids do every sunday before church they wondered they thought is this guy just really bad at painting watermelons? <laughs> but then they looked at the rest of the fruits and some of his other paintings, and they thought it's probably not that. He seems pretty decent at painting fruit. So then they wondered, have watermelons changed since he painted these? So they started to research the history of watermelons, and the first evidence of watermelons that they could find was all the way back in 3500 BC in North Africa. And he found that those were wild watermelons and that somehow these wild African watermelons had slowly made their way to Southern Europe, to Italy, where Stamshi is, around the early 1600s. So when he is painting these, watermelons are wild fruits and they're new on the scene. No one quite knows what is going on with them. They don't know how to cultivate them. Humans haven't yet gotten involved in breeding of watermelons. And that's why they're so small, because wild fruits are smaller. It's also why they're not very red. Because it was humans who tried to cultivate watermelons to select for red flesh because it was sweeter, it tasted better, it had better nutrition. And swirls around the seeds, that's actually the placenta of the watermelon protecting all those little baby new watermelons. And the fact that it's swirling to give those seeds extra protection it shows that these watermelons are a little bit stressed out in their new home they're not quite used to growing in italian soil and they don't have the pollens and the pollinators that they're used to from africa and so when we look at these watermelons we see this whole network of living things we see this fruit that is evidence of a relationship with all this life with little microorganisms in the soil, with pollinators buzzing around in the air, and with humans who tend and cultivate and draw out their sweetness. And that's what fruit is. It's formed in relationship to living things, and it's this picture of relational life. And so it makes sense that Paul will use fruit in this chapter to talk about life in the spirit. Because anytime Paul is talking about the Spirit, he's talking about God's power to create relatedness, relationships between us and between us and God. Life in the Spirit is this life of free and generous giving relationships. But the other way of living that Paul's gonna hold out in this chapter, not life in the Spirit, is life in the flesh a life that indulges and gratifies the flesh either through rigid law-keeping like a very literally fleshy act of circumcision or through self-absorbed behaviors kinds of things that paul calls indulging the flesh and it turns out that we can tell this part of the story through fruit too so if you remember that old testament reading from genesis that ben read a couple of minutes ago that, too, is a story about flesh, about spirit, and about fruit. As says, The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And that word breath is the same word for spirit. God takes this lifeless dust, he forms it into flesh, and then he breathes his own life into it. And our kids this morning actually blew all kinds of bubbles outside, and then they made these sort of, how do you depict a bubble, you know? They made these out of pipe cleaners. But I love this because it's such a picture of blowing into something and giving it a life of its own, and that's what we hear in Genesis. So thanks, kids. So. These first humans, they are given life as the image of God. They are inhabited by the spirit of God. They are given every good fruit to eat and this nice little green patch of earth to till and to tend, but before long, they want a different fruit. They want the fruit that they have been told not to eat, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And they eat that fruit, and they are cast out of the garden, and all of that abundant spirit-filled life with God becomes a life of toil and pain and alienation from God. Because human flesh was made only to know God and his goodness. It wasn't made to bear the knowledge of good and evil. And those first humans weren't satisfied with the life that was given them. They weren't satisfied being inhabited with the spirit of God. They actually wanted to eat this other fruit. And some of you know, I wrote my master's thesis on Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his theology. I won't get into the weeds there, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer living in Nazi Germany certainly knew something about good and evil. And what he says when he talks about this creation story is that that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we could call it the allure of moral certainty. This certainty, this knowledge of exactly what is right and wrong and exactly how to follow it at every moment, this was a burden we were never meant to bear. Only God can know that. And that moral certainty is always tempting us away from the satisfaction of a spirit-filled life in God. It always has this tantalizing promise that we can figure it out, that we can do it on our own, that we can figure out who is in and who is out and check off our boxes. But that fruit doesn't nourish us with life. It's actually a death-dealing poison I think we can clearly see its toxins still in us, in our society, in our politics. And this is Paul's whole issue with Christians trying to live under the law again and wanting to be circumcised. He's worried that they are going to eat that fruit of moral certainty. They're trying to live off of this concrete set of rules that tells them they are good enough and that some people aren't good enough. And Paul tells them over and over in Galatians, don't eat that, it's not good for you. Our flesh wasn't made to bear the knowledge of good and evil. We can't bear moral certainty and this impossible burden of getting it right at every moment. Our flesh was made to know God, to be inhabited by God, to be indwelled by God, to receive all of our life and goodness and nourishment from Him. And so that also means our flesh isn't something we just mindlessly gratify and indulge. And Paul gives the Galatians a list of the kinds of behaviors that are just out of sync with what we were made to be. And I really love the way Eugene Peterson translates this passage. I'm actually just gonna read it straight from the message. This is Galatians 5, 19 and 20. It's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, Cutthroat competition, all-consuming, but never yet satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or ever be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled addictions, ugly parodies of community, and I could go on and on. That is life in the flesh, as Paul holds it out here. It just settles for so much less than the indwelling spirit of God that is ours. Here's one more part to the fruit story. By contrast, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. You might notice Paul says fruit, singular, not fruits. Sometimes this verse gets used almost like a personality test or a spiritual gifts inventory. So you could say, I'm a Myers-Briggs INTJ and an Enneagram 5 and the fruit of gentleness. But this is actually one single fruit. Meaning everything on this list and probably so much more is this one cohesive thing that God wants to grow in his people by his spirit. God is making a new creation in us. He wants to undo and heal all of the dysfunction and the brokenness and the toxicity and the manipulation being wrought in us and in all creation by this bad fruit. And in its place he wants to grow good fruit through his people and this is life in the spirit this life of freedom this good and relational and fruitful life this is human life restored to what god always intended for creation where our flesh is the dwelling place of the spirit of god But how do we keep all of this from just becoming another law, a list of good things to do and a list of bad things to avoid? Listen to the final verses. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. In other words, This life in the spirit is already yours. Paul is actually not worried. You have already been crucified and resurrected with Christ. Your life in the flesh has ended. Your life in Christ has begun. You belong to Christ. The spirit is yours. All you have to do is receive it. To let this fruit grow. To resist the other fruit. Remember those watermelons, how fruit shows us this network of relationships, how it shows us the evidence of where it is drawing its life from. All we have to do is be who we were made to be, be who we already are in Christ. Let the life of the Spirit grow this wild, swirly, fruitful thing in us, these lives that show the Spirit of God the world. We'll take a moment of silence.